years and got here just in the nick of time. What does that make us? Big damn heroes, sir. Ain't we just? Call him Sonny Larry. Didn't you and he used to be the best of friends? We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM, the film and TV radio show where a handful of film enthusiasts shoot the breeze about all things film and television. I'm Marcus E. Ako and I am still recovering from the from from the from the popcorn delight there was nicholas cage and pedro pascal in the unbearable weight of massive talent i am producer dave i have not seen that film yet so uh, <laughs> yeah. i'm guessing you, that you're gonna wax lyrical about that so have you, heard, have you heard about it um no not really to be quite honest Okay, so this is just a just short, quick pitch of what the um or what what it is. It is essentially it's Nicolas Cage. The, the, the tagline on IMDb goes: In this action-packed comedy, Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage, channeling his iconic characters as he's caught between a superfan played by Pedro Pascal and a CIA agent played by Tiffany Haddish. So essentially, it's it's just one of those. A parody, a parody satire kind of things where Nicolas Cage is playing himself, right? Um, and he's, he's playing Nicolas Cage, the actor Nicolas Cage, trying to get work. And while he's struggling to get work, um, his agent, played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, says that a, a, um, a an offer has come in where a fan of his, who is this millionaire mogul in Spain, wants him to come down and spend a weekend with him for his birthday. Uh, that's played by Pedro Pascal. So when Nicolas Cage is like, oh, look, he's not getting the, the jobs he wants. He's going to retire from acting. And he flies over to Spain to go and spend a weekend, get a million and then just chill. And at the airport, he's encountered by, or he's, he's met by um, Tiffany Haddish, who's a CIA agent, who is actually tracking Pedro Pascal because he's a suspected arms dealer, I think that's what it is. And they want Nick Cage to go undercover to help them out. So it's 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 just it's switch your brain off comedy, right? And, and it's it's just it's an opportunity for Nicolas Cage to take shots at Nicolas Cage at his persona. And he if you were to say if I were to say Nicolas Cage, what springs to mind? A lot of films that I don't watch. A lot of films that you don't watch. Why don't you watch them? I don't know. I know. I, I'm just not too sure. Um, 
so, so would you consider Nicolas Cage as being a weird, crazy, out there type actor? Not really, no. Okay, fair enough. So for me, whenever I hear Nicolas Cage, right, and I know Nicolas Cage is the kind of, from what I've seen him do, the, the stuff I've seen him do is, it's like, I know he's just, he's, he's, he goes to 11. He dials it up to 11. He'll give crazy wild performances at the drop of a drop of a hat. He's happy to just go really out there with his performances. And he takes massive shots at that in this, in this film there's there's a reoccurring thing where there's him versus his wild side and you see his wild side kind of appearing to him as his twin brother and just the way he acts and pushes him into the acting thing to try and go and get more roles and be as crazy and as wacky as he can be it's it's a good film it's not going to stand the test of time even though there are a lot of uh reviews saying that it's Rotten Tomatoes are giving it 100% and it probably was 100% at one point just because of how it doesn't take itself too seriously and that's its, its charm its charm is the fact that it is it, he's he's a big movie star and he doesn't mind making fun of himself Pedro Pascal as well fantastic in it um, funnily enough uh, a couple of weeks before this before we watched this film uh, a friend of mine had seen what what he's what, what what was he in recently? Um, you know, so Pedro Pascal, you know him in Mandalorian. Uh, you know him in uh, The Last of Us, which is currently doing the rounds. And this friend of mine messaged me and said, "Does Pedro Pascal have any other facial features? Because he just doesn't seem to have any facial like expressions whatsoever." And I'm like, "Trust me, the dude is a great actor. You need to see him do his stuff." But that's because the, my friend had only seen him in The Mandalorian, which where he's wearing a mask throughout the whole time. Um, so he's like, eh, he's not too sure. And he's not sure about wanting to dive into The Last of Us. And then he watched this film before I did. And he messaged me back and just said, you know what? I take it all back from Pedro Pascal. He has a locker full of facial expressions. And Pedro Pascal knocks it out of the park in this film. He's he's fast becoming one of my favorite acting personalities of all time. He's great. He's funny. He's happy to take the, the you know the Mickey out of himself. He doesn't take himself too seriously when you see him in interviews, especially with like um, the Last of Us making the rounds, and he's now being referred to as a zaddy, which I guess is a sexy daddy. I don't know. I'm not going to go into that, but that's Pedro Pascal. Just check out this film. The two of them, the chemistry is just fantastic. Uh, it's uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent. You can get it on Amazon Prime for free. Uh, if you want to go check it out, that's fine. Check it out. Tell me how stupid you think it is, which it is. It's again, switch off your brain, laugh at some of the stupid jokes, and forget about it in about a week's time. Going back to um, Nicolas Cage, um, I just had a quick look at his uh, his filmography, and there's a lot of films he's done that I haven't watched. But the one that <laughs> kicked into my head was uh, Kick Ass, and I do remember him from that, and I thought he was brilliant in that. Exactly. I mean, Nicolas Cage is amazing. Nicolas Cage has got a lot of stuff. He's you've got Con Air, The Rock, um, just uh, what was what is it? Wild at Heart. Um, uh, leaving Las Vegas is the one he won an Oscar for because he won an Oscar. Is it is he leaving Las Vegas that he won an Oscar for? Um, or is leaving Las Vegas the other one? Because there are two Vegas films that he did. One which is um, yeah, with Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, he won an Oscar for that one. Um, where he's an alcohol, he's an alcoholic writer that goes and 
and and and and so on and so forth. But yeah, he, he did that one. And there's another one where he's going to Vegas as well, and that's to do with Elvis impersonators and so on. So it's a comedy. So he's he's got tons of stuff. There's another one that's coming up soon, which is um his take on I, th- I think he's Dracula. I can't remember the name of the film, but it's got Nicholas Holt in it as well. It's coming up pretty soon. There are pictures that have been going around. Renfield, that's the one. Um, so he, so he plays Dracula in that one as well. And again, when I say Nicolas Cage just goes all out, you, you will see it. He's he's just he's a character. He's an actor that you know that when he's on stage, when he's on screen, you whatever you can't expect, whatever you think you expect, he'll give. He'll give that plus three more. So uh, he's fantastic. I, I'm, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Um, face off, oh, face off is great as well. Uh, anyway, that that's uh, Nicholas Cage and Pedro Pascal. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm producer Dave. And we have a very, very good show for you today. Later on in the spotlight section, we're going to be talking with uh, the BAFTA nominated director, Marie Lydienne, whose uh, debut feature documentary, Electric Malady, uh, is what has gotten uh, nominated for for BAFTAs for this year for BAFTA uh, 2023 uh, in the outstanding uh, debut by a an, uh, by a director. Uh, what we talk a lot about that. The whole spotlight is about a 30 minute long segment. Segment, very interesting documentary. We had the pleasure of watching it uh, before we got to do the interview. So we talk with Marie about it. It's called Electric Malady. It's uh, just to, in case, I think we mention it in the interview, but if we don't, uh, we'll just mention it again. It's going to be out in cinemas from the 3rd of March. Go and check it out. Electric Malady. It's It, it's, it follows uh, this one, uh, this individual, William and his family. Uh, William is suffering from electrosensitivity, uh, where it's a sense where anything, the electromagnetic waves around him give him severe, uh, just to, to you sort of like summarize what it is, gives him an, a, a severe allergic reaction, so much so that he has to go and quarantine himself in the woods with, with little to no electric equipment around him because it's just, and a lot of people who are suffering from this ailment. And so this documentary dives into this particular individual how it affects him his family how people interact with him and deal with him with this particular case uh it's a great interview listen to it it's in the spotlight segment and when the movie comes out on the 3rd of march this year go check it out at your local cinema anyway before we do any of that stuff let's jump into film and tv news film and tv news segment today so the baftas was on this week um pretty today did you get to watch the baftas i watched some of it i didn't watch all of it i watched oh. some of it yeah okay so the, the baftas was held uh, on the 19th of february if i'm not mistaken this was last sunday um i completely i missed it i actually thought it was going to be the following sunday so i was waiting to watch it the following sunday but i was at gig um didn't get to see it and then it came back and my phone was blowing up with a number of 
hashtags popping up. And guess what? The main guess what was the main hashtag popped up on my phone about BAFTAs this year? Pretty safe. If I were to ask you, what do you think the main hashtag that popped up on my phone about BAFTAs was for this year? Um, I I'm I'm not even going to guess. You're going to tell <laughs> us anyway. So okay. fire so, away. I'll fire away, shall I? It was BAFTAs so white. Um, and I don't, you know, there are reasons. We've we, we talked about, we we talk a lot on this show about uh, diversity in film, television, and, and, and the creative arts. And for years, we've been hearing both the Academy Awards, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where we talked about how there was the, the argument that it was Oscars so white because, uh, you know, the, there was a massive push for Andrea Riceboro to be nominated in the best actor category, even though her film was, the film was not even noticed. It was the push by some powerful white uh, A-listers like Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett and so on and so forth. So she got pushed into that remit, whereas other um, maybe more deserving I say what again. You you can qualify what deserving means. Uh, actresses of color weren't given that same amount of support, like Angela Bassett and uh, Viola Davis, and um, oh, the other um, actress, the one who's in Till, Dan Danielle Deadweiler. That's it. Um, so they weren't given the same amount of push to, for the Oscars um, as they were as this uh, Andrea Riseborough was. So you know, thinking BAFTAs. Having seen what happened then, might there might be a little bit more of a push for the diversity angle, especially after you know, what was it, 2013 or some time ago, where Lenny Henry pretty much came out and uh, accused the British industry as being solely a white, um, you know, functioning industry. So it only supported white actors, white directors, white creatives, and so on. And so loads of channels, loads of productions were trying to be a little bit more diverse. Well, anyway, all of that to then come to BAFTAs 2023, where if we talk about the nominations, for example, um, there were uh, people of uh, people of color nominated in various categories. You did have uh, Daniel Deadweiler being uh, nominated, I believe. Uh, Michelle Yeoh was also nominated as well. I think Angela Bassett was nominated in, in the actress in the supporting actress character. Uh, she was. Sorry, she was. There you go. Um, so there were nominations. However, one of the main pictures, and this is a picture now I'm pulling up from the Guardian, uh, from a Guardian article. So this is uh, Leila Latif writes this article, and the article header in the Guardian is, uh, says, "BAFTA's all white winners lineup is shocking. It needs to learn diversity is more." than just statistics. Okay, now, the, the picture is the first thing you see on the article. And if you look at the picture, scanning through the picture itself, there are, I'm just gonna give an estimate, there are about 25 to 30, maybe even 35 people in this picture. Most of them, in fact, all of them, well, a few of them are holding up BAFTAs that they've won. And there's one black face in there, and that's, um, Alison Hammond, who was just doing interviews on the red carpet. So on that in that entire picture of all the people who are being celebrated by BAFTA, the one person who's uh, not white who's in that picture 
was an interviewer on the red carpet. And it's like, so we, we had this rant. I had this rant for the Oscars where I was talking about how there, there seemed to have been a push which was instigated by Angel, um, Andrea Riseborough and it shouldn't be that really that push. It should have been the push along the side of where are the films made by black people or people of eth- you know ethnic minorities? Where are those films being pushed out? Why is it not being pushed? And it kind of brought me to the same thing again when this popped out. I tried to say, let me anticipate what the people who will disagree with this article, right? This article that is pointing out that there is a clear lack of diversity in the in BAFTAs. And it's true. It's it's like some people might say, well, you know, the the opposing argument would be, well, you know, should we just nominate some black films, just random black films to be able to get them on there so that they can go and win and so that we can say diversity is one. And I said, rather than answering that question, let me go a little deeper. And I thought, let's look at looking at the categories, right, looking at the films that were being nominated and the filmmakers being nominated. The real question is one that people have been like people like Lenny Henry um, uh, uh, have been arguing for a while, not just Lenny Henry, there are a whole bunch of other, um, you know, um, actors and producers of color who have been mentioning this. And it's the fact that, okay, maybe you're saying, I'm I'm not saying we should just nominate and just award people of color just for, for the sake of having color in the group. But when you then look at the films that are being nominated, a lot of them made by white people. A lot of them feature white people. Very few feature people of color. So it then goes back to the fact of, okay, so where are the black films? And I did a Google search just before uh, we came out, just before we jumped on this show for, for this episode. Um, what you know? What black films came out in 2022? Can you think of any black films? Any, and by black films, I mean films made by black filmmakers featuring may, mainly a black cast or a, a cast of color as opposed to just white. Producer Dave, can you think of any films that came out in 2022 or 2023 that have that? Well, the film that pumped into my head was the... Um... Warrior King, but I'm not even sure how far that goes back. So the the Woman King, okay. Yeah. So the Woman yeah. King, yeah. The Woman King, that's one. Can you think of anything else? Not really, not off the top of my head. Yeah, the only three that really came to me straight away: Woman King, Black Panther, and Till. All three American films, right? So it's I can't think of any British films that had. It, it died, such a diverse character, uh, you know, diverse, you know, either front or, or behind camera. So where where was the uh, Steve McQueen films? Michaela Cole has been, I'm sure she's got films that she wants to get done. Um, I know, obviously, Noel Clark has has had his issues. He was a, a he was a BAFTA darling until the issues were happening with regards to the allegations that came out and so on and so forth. So the, the, now that he's and one of the things that I was saying when that when he, that happened to him was, well, that means there's a it, just as a joke, just as the the random joke that popped into my head was, well, now that he's been taken off the board, there's a space open for a black person to step in to to fill in that role, and that joke is 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 slightly whatever you call it, funny, whatever, but it has a tinge of sadness to it in the sense that. 
there's an acceptance that there's only one place, one spot for one person of color in the British film industry to go and occupy. It's like, okay, no Clark is gone. So there's one space. So it is now opened up for one actor, one filmmaker to go in and occupy that. Once that spot has been filled, done, no more. We're not allowed anymore. And it's, and that's the problem, right? The problem is the fact that there aren't, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be that open, uh, you know, that that opportunity that's been set up for films featuring more of a diverse cast to be pushed up front. All the films that are being that are given massive support, Banshees of Inisherin, great film, fantastic film. It's set in Ireland in a small village where there are no black people, no people of color, right? So, and that's a fine, that's, that, that in itself is not the problem because at the end of the day, that's what that story is about. But you can't, you look at it and you think about it and think, okay, hold on a second. It's where, where that immediately we gravitate towards that immediately um, film production companies and, and massive studios like Disney and whatnot will chuck money at that. We'll say, yes, okay, Martin McDonough, yeah, Colin Farrell, uh, Brendan Gleeson, absolutely, we'll pay everything that you want to get that film done. Where's the film that is set in, I don't know, just wherever you want to put it, South London, that isn't about drugs. That's another thing as well. That's another part that I want to try and focus on. The fact that when it comes to films with people of color, it tends to be, oh, hold on a second, let's go back to the to kidulthood, adulthood, bullet boy, top boy, Films where it's like it's like the black actors, the black characters are criminals, are, are gangsters, are in the estates. What? Why can't we have? Why can't we have an Ocean's Eleven with many black people or black and brown people or you know, you know, London is supposed to be one of the most diverse cities in the world. Why is it that we have these? Jump to just if we just do really quickly. I'm gonna do. The BAFTA search, so BAFTA nominees. So BAFTA, BAFTA 2023 nominations for best films. So for best film, uh, here's the list. You've got, there's that full list there. Sorry, this is, a, I, I know I'm ranting a bit on this, but it's, it's, it's what is the problem, right? This is the problem. It's the problem where these films that are being created are being created, the opportunity that is being given is not being given, from what I can see, to filmmakers of color to be able to step up and actually do these films. So here we go. Um, best film category. The one that won was All Quiet on the Western Front, which I believe I, I haven't seen it. No, it's on uh, on um, what you call it. It's on Netflix, possibly. And I think it's a French film. Is, is it a French film? No, it's a German or, film. German film. So it's a German film. So again, immediately all white cast. Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front. That's what won best film. N next film. Uh, Banshees of Inner Sharing. We've already talked about that. Elvis, Baz Luhrmann film. Again, all white cast. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the one that has the ethnic diversity in it, right? It's the one where you have um, Daniel is produced by or directed by Daniel Kwan, um, Jonathan Wang, and so on. It's got Michelle Yeoh in it. That's the one. That yeah, it won. It, it, it did win, but uh, not any of the major prizes. Okay, now let's jump to let's jump to outstanding British film. Here are the categories for outstanding British film. You have After Sun, 
Okay, so I, I hadn't really heard of Aftersun, but I'll come back to that in a second. Banshee's been a sharing. That's what won uh, outstanding British film. Brian and Charles, Empire of Light, uh, directed by Sam Mendes, which, funnily enough, okay, that has um, it has a black leading uh, actor in it. In fact, um, so I don't give any, I, I give it its due, Empire of Light, that has Michael Ward as one of the lead characters in it. And again, the, fantastic. Michael Ward uh, played opposite Olivia Coleman, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, Tom Brooke, um, Hannah Onslow. Three uh, characters of color in the entire film. The lead is, uh, one of the leads is, is black. Fair enough. Michael Ward, fantastic performer. Excellent. Now, take him. If I scroll straight to the um, leading actor character, character categories... He's not in the leading actor category. He's nominated as best supporting actor. So you have him in there for Empire Light. So that's one film with a white um, director, white creator featuring one black actor in it. So you're having this small smattering here and there. And that apparently is what is considered as being diversity in, in BAFTA. Is it, and that, that's the argument. The argument, the counter argument to the BAFTA so white is, oh, well, hold on a second. You are having some black people in there. I, I've, I've mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 films, 15 films. Right. And in all of those 15 films, they were nominated. This is um, five films from the best film category and um, a mixture of those films in the outstanding British uh, film category. And of all of those films, only one of them, only one of them has one black actor in it that is being nominated in there. So this is where the argument comes from it, of BAFTA so white. And, it, it, and I'm just, this is just a tired rant from myself. I'm sure a lot of people have heard it. A lot of people are uh, sick and tired of hearing this rant. And the, rather than hearing the rant, they're asking, well, what's the solution? My personal suggestion is the solution, while there was the argument with, in America, they went with the BET Awards. How about you go and have a separate category just for a black British film or for black films? And all the, the problem with that is now you're segregating them. So you're basically saying, OK, all the black films should then go and sit in that one section and shouldn't be accepted by the wider category. And then recently we had the article with by Idris Elba or from the interview with Idris Elba, where he's saying that he's not considering himself as a black actor anymore. He's considering himself as a, an actor, which I get. I totally get. You shouldn't have to put black in front of the fact that you're an actor because that immediately sets you apart. But the problem with going down that argument is it's being diluted yes black actors don't want to be considered or black filmmakers don't want to have that moniker or that prefix in front of them their their qualification they don't want to be black filmmaker they just want to be filmmaker actor actress but the problem is in order to get to that stage we need to be able to make it available to have films featuring these people of color being more prominent, being out there, which means investing more in these films. It means allowing black filmmakers, brown filmmakers, uh, you know, ethnically ambiguous filmmakers to get out there and make their films and get it out there so that when BAFTA then comes out, you don't have 
10 films being nominated and all of them are just white people. Maybe, for example, you can have six of them being white people and four of them being by black filmmakers, something along those lines. Anyway, this is just a rant. It's going to go nowhere. But I just want to say out there, it's happening. We're going to have the same rant again next year when all of this is going to happen. Something else is going to happen. We'll sweep it on the rug and so on. But either way, just, I don't know, whoever wants to tell me a better way to deal with this, please let me know. Other than that, you've been listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And let's jump into Spotlight. In our Spotlight segment today, we're going to be talking with the director of the documentary, which has been nominated for a Best Outstanding Debut by a British Writer, Director or Producer. It's The Electric Malady, and this is Marie Lidienne. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we are here with the director of a documentary which is about to drop. It is a BAFTA-nominated documentary called Electric Malady. Please tell us your name and answer this question. What is your favorite documentary, other than yours, what is your favorite documentary of all time? What pops into your head straight away when I ask that question? Um, All, all That Breathes, which is now uh, nominated for a BAFTA as well in the documentary all that breathes. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll jump into yours. Oh, it's this one wonderful uh, documentary um, set in India, following this these two brothers who are, you know, looking after wild birds in Delhi. I think I don't want to say it wrong, but <laughs> it's okay. It's not your film, so you can you can butcher the story as much as you want. No, I but don't want least... to. It's so wonderful. Um, but it's this. It's just this beautiful observation on the contrast between humans and nature. And these brothers just have the most beautiful depth and philosophical way of looking at life. And I saw it recently and I was just blown away. Okay, fantastic. No problem. How do you pronounce your last name? Lydian. Lydian. Because there's an accent on the E. So it's Marie Lydian. Yeah. Okay, excellent. I, I like to do that as an ask our guests to say their name because I always butcher the names. Ask producer Dave. I'm very, I'm guilty of doing that. It might be very, very simple, um, which is why I call him producer Dave. So we're here with Marie Lidien, uh, right. who is the uh, director of the documentary, the BAFTA-nominated documentary, Electric Malady. Please tell us, what is your documentary about? It is following the journey of a family battling with an illness, a condition called electrosensitivity, uh, which is when the sufferer become um, hypersensitive to electromagnetic fields. And it's just looking at the experience of, um, of this family and what it's like not being believed, what loneliness does to you and... Yeah, and but it's it's actually about love, and it's about this like really powerful connection between this family and their son, who's just really ill, and I 
think is just a really powerful story about resilience and um yeah love before i heard about your documentary i had heard about electrosensitivity the very first time i'd heard of electrosensitivity was watching the tv show better call saul yeah. where a character in it chuck mcgill is the brother of the main character jimmy mcgill uh he suffers from electrosensitivity which for those people who don't know what that is okay i'm going to put this in a way that might garner some criticism please correct me if i'm wrong uh you can if you want to break it down to its essentials it is a hyper um, hyper allergic reaction to magnetic waves in the air so things such electromagnetic uh, electromagnetic waves in the air so things like phone waves microwaves everything electricity is extremely torturous to those people and as such what they have to do is isolate themselves in a room that has little to no bit of electricity they have to they usually wrap themselves in tin foil and as such that's what this particular character does in this in the show um who was a high flying very successful lawyer and he encounters this um and there was something that you just mentioned as well when you were describing it where you said it's it's uh, it's something that the people who suffer from this often tend not to be believed mm-hmm. could you expand a little bit more on that perception that you got so electrosensitivity is you know, is is like a series of symptoms and is re- and you know it can be anything ranging from getting a headache after you speak on your mobile phone for too long or you know sleeping better if you turn the wi-fi off at night all the way to like seizures you know burns on your face like really severe cases like like williams for example in the film but because it's like it's a series of symptoms rather than and is invisible as well it's very hard to diagnose so i think so why so why it's so difficult to, to for people to believe that you're suffering from something like that yeah I mean, um, I mean, even, even and also, doctor... and also, but but like, so sorry, I just want to say, so you know, the whole tin foil fact, like it's actually like foil shields from radiation. So it's not, and and the fabrics that William is using are protecting him against radiation. But it's making, of course, when you just look at a character like that, it's a really extreme thing to see. And if you've never heard of this before, I mean, most people's conclusion would be like, okay, but well, I think there's something, you know. Uh, not right there or you know there must be something psychologically going on there because we've never seen it before and most of the time like the people who are actually in that stage when they need to protect themselves with fabrics are in such a desperate situation that they will just do pretty much anything to relieve the symptoms that they are feeling yeah and there's a very surreal moment in your documentary where uh, William, the the uh, protagonist of the documentary, uh, he he puts on because he loves music, and he was putting on uh, a, 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 a song, and you see him in his full regalia with the fabric and uh, a contraption that helps hold it over his head, and he goes and he's dancing in the hallway, and it reminded me straight away of uh, is it uh, the the fantasy film where where the wild things are. It was just big characters, these big monster type characters, um, just because that's what he looks like. He's not, it's not, he, when, he, when you describe it as he puts fabric over his head, someone who hasn't seen any image of it might think 
the, how you dress up as a ghost, for example, when you just put a bedsheet over you. It's not like that. It's a case of there is, I, I didn't get to see the full makeup of what was underneath, but it's not only just a fabric going over him, it's spread out as well. And so it's a very huge thing, a huge canopy covering him. And it was very surreal to watch him do that. And there was a line in it as well where uh, I think it was a doctor who had come to visit him uh, said that he'd been do, he'd been experiencing that for five years. His his comment was a lot can happen in five years. It was it, it's immense. And you started off describing the documentary about the effect that it has on his family, and we see that primarily through the mother and the father. Tell us how did you approach the parents to talk about doing this documentary about their son? I have a really kind of personal uh, connection to this project. My my mom uh, suffered from electrosensitivity when I was a kid, and I grew up with a very limited um, kind of exposure to electricity. Um, and I I was getting to the age that my mother was when she uh, when she got ill, and I started started thinking about it loads and worrying that you know is this a genetic thing? Is this something that's going to happen to me? And then gradually, I wanted to make this film, which was about a child's experience, looking looking at something like this and trying and trying to understand something which is uh, not believed and uh, ridiculed. Um, and my mom. I was convinced my mom had become a vampire, for example. So I was eight years old when she she got ill. And I was like, right, okay, she's sensitive to light. She feels like her skin is on fire. She just needs to lie in this dark room with no electricity. I was like, right, I, I think I know what this is, vampire. Um, and then, you know, gradually, because uh, my mom's illness has happened overnight as well with all these strange symptoms, you know, it took a really long time before we... We realized what it was, and then through the process of elimination, we were able to kind of see that, okay, when the TV is, is on or when the stove is on, she has these symptoms. So, yeah, so that was going to be the film, and then I wanted to speak to more characters in the film. And then I placed this ad in a Swedish newspaper that goes out to people with electrosensitivity. And I said, you know, I'm... I'm making a film about, about my, my own experience and I'm looking for more stories. I, I mean, I can't even tell you, that, like I was completely overwhelmed with response from all the Nordic countries, UK, like all over the world. And a few phone calls came in and William Stad was, was one of those people. Yeah, I just uh, spoke to him a few times over the phone and then went out to see, see them. Okay, you're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we're speaking with Marie Lidien, who's the director of uh, Electric Malady, which is the BAFTA-nominated documentary focusing on uh, electrosensitivity. Producer Dave, you have a question. Yes, I do, Marie. I was going to ask you another question, but you've actually pretty much answered it by saying that you put in the ad. Now, to follow on from that, you said you spoke to William's dad about this when he called. What made you home in, as it were, on William's case to actually feature him in the documentary instead of just focusing on what you were actually going to do, which was talk about yourself and the other people who had contacted you? 
So um, I just really liked William's dad from the very start. He's like very, he, he had like a really high position in Volvo. Um, he's like, you know, a really credible character. So I was really cautious in the beginning because electrosensitives are already really worried about how they are being seen uh, to the rest of the world. And I was really cautious, like I wanted characters who seemed very credible. And they just had this really, you know, like I just really liked the way he, he spoke about things. And then the first time I saw William, which is quite, you know, he's quite a vision. He's like this... Um, how did you say like an octopus flowing octopus kind of flowing around in his little cage in the middle of the forest you know it's a really kind of surreal feeling and then I remember the first time I saw him and I thought oh I don't think I'm not sure about this person he look, he looks too extreme um but then after half an hour of speaking to him I I was like, this guy is so incredible. And the way he speaks about things, he's so philosophical and and he has this beautiful way of describing past and memory and um and loss and love. Um and it was actually it was a really difficult to make a film to make from a financial point of view as well. You know, the whole the whole project took 10 years and we were told so many times that you're never going to be able to connect with it. Someone who's completely covered in fabric or, you know, you have to make a scientific film. Otherwise no one's going to believe this is real. And I just, just felt that this family had so, so much depth and their world is so extreme and so bizarre in a way, but the love and resilience and kind of humor um, is, is, is really special Um and in, it was not until in the final editing um, stages or kind of midway through the editing that I just thought there's no more room for anyone else. Like they they need more space and William's story kind of deserves more space. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's just maybe just them as characters and I just fell in love with them, I guess. So that's the kind of reason why I felt why everyone else just fell away. From what you've described, what you mentioned, and you pointing out that you had a personal connection to this, it does explain a lot with exactly exactly with the way the film is. The film is literally just following them, and it's it, most of the people we see people come in and go out and whatnot. But it we this might just be my own impression of it. We don't really care about those people that come in and go go out. The people that we spend most of our time with are the parents or with William, with his sister. We get to enjoy those moments with them. And we get to see how the outside world places pressure not only on William, but also on on the parents. There's the one scene in particular where they describe how a psychiatrist responds to his diagnosis and how the police get involved and so on. What was your impression when you discovered, when you heard that particular story about how the psychiatrist said, uh, seen William's diagnosis and or given that William diagnosis and then the following uh, impression as to what the police then did what struck you the most about that particular direction that was taken um I mean unfortunately this is quite a common common scenario for electrosensitive uh people especially like I 
you know, William has such a supportive family, but many, many people who start believing that they have electrosensitives, that they have these symptoms and that they are electrosensitives don't really have their the support from their families. They think they're crazy or, you know, losing it. And some people even try to get their children committed, which has happened to several people I've spoken to. Um, so, yeah, I, think, I mean, it strikes me really sad. I mean, especially the kind of psychi- psychiatrist in the, in the film, I feel has a bit of a basic um, attitude to trauma. I guess it's hard to to describe this with like for people who haven't seen the the film. But you know, it's like if if you're so extreme as William, there's there has to have been a trauma, like, and that's it. There's no um, that's just it. You you have forgotten. You have de- you're just denying this trauma that happened to you when you were a child, um, and instead of just listening properly to people's experiences um so it's hard to say but my impression you know like I think is we, we should listen more to people and not just judge people on like immediately because we don't think that this is possible um for example but you know it's a very very sad situation it was really traumatic that situation was actually very traumatic for William and his family um rather than things that they they thought had happened to him in the past um yeah and yes I I, I mean with as you said it's sort of as somebody who I was struck by one, one of the very earlier lines in the story where someone, I think it was the dad, had said that this is always something that you think happens to someone else. Mm-hmm. And throughout, I was watching this, I was watching the documentary, and that, that same thought kept reoccurring in my head where I've heard about electrosensitivity before and it's always someone else is happening. How would I react if that were to happen? And it's kind of like even preceding the story about the psychiatrist, I started thinking if someone in my family were to encounter, were to have that, how would I approach it? How would I deal with it with my experiences in my network, my support system, et cetera? Um, and the moment, I guess it was creeping up to that point. And then when you see what the extreme reaction is to it, which is where the police come in and they grab him and they take him to be committed, uh, it's sort of... It, it pushed beyond what I was anticipating I would do. And, and I, it's like, you see what the final result is. And it, what I found myself saying was, no, that's not going to work. Even if you don't believe the person, it's not going to work. Because even if you think it's psychosomatic, what you're, on, what you're doing there is you're just forcing, and I'm going to use delusion in air quotes, I, not saying that it's delusionary, but even if it is, even if you think that is, that's what it is, you using force is only going to force that delusion to become, you know, stuck. Because it's now a case of, well, I don't care. It's the same. It's dealing with someone who's stubborn, who has stubborn views. If you try to force them to, um, to say, no, you're wrong, they're going to be embedded even deeper in their own ideas. And that becomes a problem. So that is, so immediately, that was the wrong way to take it. Um, so I, and I, I don't know what the right way 
way to deal with that in that case would be obviously you, your story is looking at one person's perspective. It One thing that it definitely did for me was it gave me the push to go and research electro sensitivity a little bit more. Um, what type of research did you do into the subject matter before tackling it in the documentary and focusing on William's story? Um, so, um, I so as I said, the first thing, uh, first it was going to be about my own personal experience. And then, I mean, so many times we were just like saying, like people said, yeah, it has to be a scientific film. Otherwise, no one's going to believe you. No one's going to listen, listen to, to these people. So I was like, right, okay. Uh, we need to have experts in it. So we were, we were filming several people and, um, you know, speaking to so many people and the research I, I did, I mean, oh my God, I've got so like folders and folders of research and uh, files on my computer, but it's like I did so much, but it's really difficult. Like if you look in one direction, like, it, like once it's like okay but they're just they're just making this up and then if you look the other direction there's you know endless um research to say that this is like this is real so it kind of you know, i did all that research but then it's it's just every time i'm not a scientific person and every time we tried to go down that route it just felt wrong for the film and in the end i just felt like that was not really what the film was about like it, it's not whether this is real or not it's like people are forced into this really extreme situations because they have this or believe they have this and that's real and that experience is really difficult and traumatic to people like I know there are several people or several many people in the UK, you know, currently living in their cars, you know, escaping mass and like really desperate situations, and it's real. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of irrelevant. We're trying to prove this is real or not. You know that that's what it felt. And then, so it took kind of took us in this big circle, just back to focusing on on the family and. Um, what, what, you know, how you go through something like this. Okay, I'll throw uh, one final question to producer Dave before we move out of the story of the documentary and talk more about the film itself, you know, how, how people can get to see it and talk the uh, the the business end of, uh, of Electric Melody. So producer Dave, you've got a question. I just wondered, has William and his family considered relocating to somewhere which has less in the way of technology? Yes, but um, like William, I mean, this has been a long process to get to where he is right now. Um, I think this family have tried everything that you could possibly think of. Right now, William is in a very low radiating zone. It's actually very low radiation where he lives. Um, and he's also in this cage. However, even saying that, you know, when I stand outside his house, which is protecting him with my phone, I've got full, you know, full bars of, of 4G. You know, like it's impossible to escape, really. Um, you know, there's been times when they're like, okay, maybe if we build a bunker for him, um, 
in the ground or whatever, but, you know, then he wouldn't see the light. So, they, you know, there are all these things. So, yes, they have, they, I think they've considered, like, everything, um, really. I don't think William would travel very well because, you know, like, every time he ha he lifts his fabric or leave his house, which he hardly does. Because like he lives in the house that he lives in is a Faraday cage, elites of radiation. So when he goes outside of that house, he's more exposed. Um, so it's really, really difficult in, in that way. I just want to say something like about the process of filming as well, because you know, like the when you think about like a responsibility you have as a, a filmmaker, normally about protecting your subject or or thinking about the effects that you have walking into someone else's life and and when they give you their story. Like there is just a really difficult kind of process of trying to figure out how to film someone with electricity, electrosensitivity. And, you know, uh, we used hand-cranked 16mm uh, film cameras and really small uh, kind of DSLR cameras. And even though we did everything to minimize the exposure that we had on him, you know, we had a physical effect on him being in that room. Um, and, you know, sometimes he would have to recover for, for a full full day after. So it's like he's he's extremely sensitive. Um, so I think even just the f like moving him would be a really huge ordeal as well. Yeah. And it's also, as you said, it's where would you move him to, to find a, a place that doesn't encounter, that doesn't have cell signal? I mean, even in the, the deepest, the darkest parts of the Amazon, somebody probably has a cell phone that works. So it's uh, obviously, it's problematic. So yeah, and um, if you, look, but, if you yeah. look at the Swedish map and if you look at like connectivity there, it's like everywhere. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So this film, Electric Malady, uh, it's going to be coming out at the end of February. Um, t tell us a little bit more about uh, sort of you, you, the distribution. Where can people go and get this film? To learn more about electrosensitivity. Um, so our UK distributors are called Conic. Um, and if you go to their website, all our kind of um UK cinema dates are on there. Um we are screening on the 28th of February in London, the ICA. Should uh Try to get those dates up. Um, but yeah, we're doing three screenings in, in London, uh, first and second. And then, yeah, just the rest of the UK after that. I don't... And then you'll get... I, I knew you were going to ask this question. I would have had <laughs> it in front of me. Don't worry at all. Uh, it, what we're going to do is at the for the tail of the tail end of this episode, we're going to we'll, we'll get all of that information. We'll put it out, and when we do the podcast as well, we're going to have that in the show notes so that everybody knows exactly where they can go and do that. Same thing with the social media tags, how they can follow uh, both your work and uh, and the film itself. One final question I want to ask before we let you go: um, for people who are going to watch this film. 
what is the main takeaway? I know obviously you can take away different messages from a film. What's the main takeaway that you want audiences to have when they walk away from Electric Melody? Um, don't be so quick to judge. Um, you know, um, there are many ways that people get to where they are now and it's not so black and white. Um, I I think uh, I would love for if, if people like reevaluate um, how you know their connect like connections with family and how important that is and friendships. But in a way, I think like COVID did that, and and going through lockdowns, I I can sense that people's uh, attitude towards this film has really changed after um after lockdowns because people understand the effects of isolation um a lot more. But I think that's the main thing. Like, don't be so quick to judge. Excellent. Marie Lidienne, thank you very much for taking the time to sit with us and talk about your BAFTA-nominated documentary, Electric Malady. And it's going to be coming out at the end of February. Like I said, we're going to post uh, the dates and the locations on the show notes and at the end of this episode. Uh, and obviously, when you get that going on, when you, you know, it's picked up by Sky and by all the uh, various streaming services, Please come back on to talk more about it and we can spend the entire hour talking about electrosensitivity and other projects in the world. That was our conversation with Marie Lidienne on uh, her documentary, Electric Malady, which was nominated for the BAFTA uh, Outstanding Debut by a British writer, director, producer. It's a fantastic documentary. It's coming out in cinemas on the 3rd of March. Go check it out uh, and you'll get to learn a little bit more about electromagnetic sensitivity. Uh, you've been listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM. You know, without you listening to us on the podcast and on Resonance FM, I wouldn't have this opportunity to rant about loads of stuff to do with, you know, BAFTA so white and Oscar so white and and why She-Hulk is a problem and why I'm not even going to watch Velma and why I think Marvel is one of the greatest things and why whatever. I'm not going to have the opportunity to do that. So I want to thank you very much for allowing me to use this as my therapy session and, and thank producer Dave as well for bearing the brunt of my rants every week whenever I come and get the opportunity to do this. I also want to thank Resonance FM. Um, if you haven't already done this, Please go to Resonance FM, the website, and check out some of the uh, some of the uh, annual fundraising uh, activities they've got going on. They've got some great things available for you that you can go just to help out the the channel, the the station. It's a charity station for for the arts. Uh, they don't get they don't get massive amounts of money coming for they don't do commercials they just basically support creatives who want to come and talk about films about art about music about theater so do them do them great service go onto their website check out some of the fundraising campaigns that they have and donate some money so that they, they can keep going and keep allowing people like me to keep ranting as i do uh you've been listening to shoot the breeze on resonance fm i have been marcus Diaco. i'm still producer today and thank you very much for listening. And speak to you all next time. Goodbye. Bye.